Hey everyone, I'm Chris Lesniak. And I'm Rob Beyer. And this is the Debate Math Podcast. Hey listeners, before we start today, we want to shout out our exclusive sponsor, Hand to Mind. Hand to Mind is supporting our ability to bring you today's podcast. For over 50 years, Hand to Mind has been filling gaps in core curriculum and improving learning outcomes with supplemental hands-on resources in math, literacy, and science. Hand to Mind is committed to providing high-quality resources and tools that are effective, flexible, and easy to use. We know that multisensory hands-on instruction in math is critical to helping students build meaningful connections and make sense of abstract concepts. Visit handtomind.com. That's the word hand, the number two, and the word mind.com to learn more about tools and resources to enhance your math instruction. Well, grading, sometimes referred to as the third rail, something too hot to talk about. And we have two wonderful guests who reached out wanting to talk more about grading. And specifically ways we might break away from traditional grading systems. Which brings us to the resolution, who sets the standards for grading? And here debating one alternative to traditional grading, we have a veteran math teacher, assistant principal, and upcoming conference chair for NCTM 2023 annual in Washington, D.C., Carl Oliver. Hi, Carl. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. Can you tell our listeners where you are and what your current role is? Right now, I'm in Brooklyn, New York City, and my current role uh, is assistant principal at City S School and a math teacher, too. I also get to teach uh, a couple math classes, so that's interesting. Nice. And debating against Carl with another alternative to grading is 24-year teaching veteran. VP of Programs for the Greater San Diego Math Council and author of a chapter in the forthcoming NCTM publication, Success Stories for Catalyzing Change in School Mathematics, Nolan Fossum. Hey, Nolan, how's it going, man? Good. How's everybody doing tonight? Good. Hey, can you tell our listeners uh, where you are and what your current role or roles are? Yeah, I'm in Southern California. I'm spanning two counties. I live in North San Diego County, and uh, my regular teaching gig is up in Mission Viejo at Tribuco Hills High School. Um, I'm also teaching a class, a couple of classes through the University of San Diego down in San Diego schools. So I'm teaching college algebra, geometry, and statistics right now. Awesome. Thanks, Nolan. Welcome. Thanks. Very good. And, and now the question we want to ask all of our guests is, when did math first become controversial to you? And I'll start with you, Carl. I thought of two things. The first thing I thought of was when I was in seventh grade and I was like, I don't know, I was in a hallway that I normally am not in. And I looked in the classroom and I noticed that like all the kids in that room were doing algebra. And I, I, I figured out that like I wasn't in that class and I didn't, I never figured out why or, or, or I didn't have opportunity to like get in or could ask my parents. It was just like decided that they were, they were in and I was out and I was like, less. Well, that's not really you know, fair. But um, on a content level, I think inside the math, like content, talking about whether zero over zero equals one, that was that was pretty that was pretty controversial. Wow. Thanks. And Nolan, uh, when did math first become controversial to you? Honestly, I think I was fairly oblivious, probably until I started teaching. And it was probably my early teaching years, both of the range of like algebra one classes and also calculus classes that I started to catch a sentiment um, from the female students that, you know, some of them were unconfident and feeling like math wasn't a place for them. 
And um, it sort of struck me because I didn't have a consciousness for it, mostly because like as a teacher, well, like I mentioned, I was just kind of clues to it probably growing up. Um, but also as a teacher, like so many of my strong students, of course, were girls. And so like, it was something I had to sort of wrestle with, like, where's this coming from? And, and I just wasn't really aware of it prior to that. Wonderful. Thank you both. And with that, let's get into the debate. We begin with opening statements from each of our speakers. You each have two minutes to present your arguments. And based on a coin flip before this recording, we are starting with Carl Oliver and your vision for grading. You're up first. Your two minutes begins now. Grades are pointless. Feedback for students could be given in a myriad of ways, including all the ways that we receive feedback as adults. None of those types of feedback also are letter grades that I know of. Um, the grades that are most certainly received by students are usually depicted as a referendum on that individual's worth. So if you talk to students or adults, they'll say, oh, yeah, I am a C student or I was a C student. And they won't correct it for themselves as, oh, I was a student who got C's. So, yeah, grades are pointless. Um, the opposite also isn't necessarily responsible. It's not like we're at the Boys and Girls Club and, and students are just in there to do whatever. Students sort of have a mandate in our math classes to grow, to be changed, to become something more than they would have on their own, under their own self-directed um, opportunities. And so in, in our classes, we have to push them and that push should be able to be measured. And the teachers are the ones who are best able to measure and the ones who should be crafting the standards and giving students a feedback to move towards those standards and those, and those goals. So my claim is that teachers can best foster student growth by creating worthy tasks and standards and describe how students grow through working on those tasks. I have three warrants for this claim. One, teachers are qualified and prepared to assess most of the relevant growth that a student exhibits over a marking period. Um, and this competence is evident in teachers working to create and assess tasks through the year, as well as where teachers work on standardized tests. Two, tying up teachers' ability to give great feedback in the practice of delivering grades does a disservice to this work. Um, and three, the need for experiences that put student growth at the forefront will involve students in the process. So having students talk about the different choices that they can make in their assignments and being able to work with the teacher on creating the kind of feedback that they can uh, grow from. Thank you. And now we'll hear from the opposing side, Nolan Fossum. We want to hear about your vision for grading and who sets the standards. You have two minutes and your time begins now. To the question, who sets the standards for grading? I ask, whom do we want to set the standards? And this question really gets to the heart of the purpose of education. The history of our educational system shows us clearly what role grades play to rank and sort, to promote student compliance, and to reinforce clear lines of where the power lies within the classroom. Ask anybody, and I bet they have stories of how grading has felt unfair in their own life. And since we know that these issues disproportionately affect different student groups, we must advocate for change in grading. So my claim is that a culturally responsive pedagogy requires us to rethink grading in ways that elevate the student's role and diminish external validation from the teacher over time. I have three warrants for this claim. First, students enter our classes with different strengths, different areas of growth, 
and different needs. And a standardized approach to grading by definition imposes a metric that students have to conform to. In doing so, students deny aspects of their own humanity to meet the standards rather than the learning environment adapting to meet the students where they are. Second, we send a clear, even if unintended message about what we actually value when our grading practices don't align with the equitable mathematics teaching practices we strive to implement. And third, grading practices that do not include the student in both setting goals and evaluating progress reinforce the white supremacy culture norms that continue to harm our students. And let me be totally clear. I support every move, large or small, that seeks to undo the harm of entrenched traditional grading. And I know that we face obstacles that may be beyond our control, but we have to dream big for a better future for our students. Thank you both. You've already uh, thrown a lot at us to think about here. I I see already some agreement that there's issues with like a traditional grading system and how students or even adults identify themselves as as C students, as Carl said, right? Uh, and how it can affect us. Uh, when you're both thinking about different ways we can more fairly or equitably assess and grade students or what that means. Um, but I think the distinction really is like, Carl, you want teachers to set, set a goal. And and no, it sounds like you want more of a student uh, view of that, uh, of them setting their own goals in some sense, maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe uh, I'll start with a question. Thinking about grading and learning as, as different things, like what is the difference between a student learning something and their performance in class? I'll jump in with that one. Um, I think we all have a lot of experience as educators of students who are out to get the grade. Our whole, whole culture seems to be built on this idea of the performance as a motivator. And a lot of the practices that we're using to try and get students to do their best work, it seems like often turn into just opportunities for students to get points, to earn the grade. and it sort of sets the value of the work that they'll do towards the grade that they're trying to earn. So if they're earning an A, then what's the motivation to work harder, right? They've got what they were aiming for in terms of performance. And let's say a student is striving to do better and is not getting a grade. Well, then are they really driving towards the learning goals that we have for them? Or are they just complying with our obligations and our tasks just to get those points? So I feel like there's this constant struggle between those two. And I'm not sure that when the teachers are reinforcing, you know, the typical kind of approach in in terms of these are the standards we're after, you can reassess all the typical things that were necessarily opening up students to be driving towards learning for the sake of learning, but just, is it just another way of, of meeting a standard to get more points to get a better grade? I think it's hard to measure the difference between learning and like growth. I think it's possible for students to know something and to be able to perform that thing in a number of ways and still not be prepared to use that thing in the kind of real world settings that the students are going to enter into in you know the moments moments after they they graduate so while a student might like understand the values of, of saving money and, and can fill out the assessments for it they might not be able to apply it to their student loans in a way that'll prevent them from leaving college in debt so it's, it's, it's hard to imagine a way of a student like really showing that they're learning without having them apply it to like their own life and to be able to present like that, that kind of internal reflection as, as like, yeah, look, look what I've learned. I think the, the performance can come when maybe you're in a hurry and you don't really have time to create an assessment that would give a student a chance to do that kind of reflection. 
And so you settle for saying like, well, did you hit, did you hit these points or, or did you know enough to answer the questions on the test or can you, can you tell me what saving is? Can you just, can you explain what a saving strategy would be? So I think a big part of the, the question around that you're bringing up is sort of like, are we trying to get students to show that they've learned something or trying to show that they've grown and grown in a way that's going to be like valuable for their, their life afterwards? I think I need to back you guys up here for a second. And I, I want to ask a little more detail about this. So you're talking a lot about what um, like the purpose of grading is and things, but I, can we spell out for our listeners, like what is it you envision this looks like for classrooms on a day-to-day basis or for the assessment? And maybe Nolan, do you want to start us off? Like what is your vision of what classrooms look like if their students are setting the standards for their own grades? We're a million miles away from my long-term vision of what this looks like because we have so much entrenchment in current systems of grading. So I'll sort of break it up into two pieces and I'll do it quickly. The long-term vision is students have a lot more agency in determining what they, what it is they want to be learning within the context of the content, whatever that is, um, how they demonstrate that learning and also assessing their own goals. Right now, we need to provide a lot of um, guidance for students. And so I'm seeing that, um, you know, we can be giving traditional quizzes and tests, but instead of just marking them the traditional way, we can be using them as a piece of evidence and students can be writing about those within a portfolio. I think we should be setting goals aside from just content mastery, that also includes, for instance, mastery or progress within the eight math practice standards. And so the students who maybe don't necessarily always have a genuine promise of success because they've got a lot of gaps in their learning. You know, we, we tell them, sure, you can, you can get any grade you want, but the fine print is you got to fill in your own gaps. When maybe what we set them up for success is something like, let's see how you persevere in problem solving and making sense. Let's see how you're attending to precision. Let's see how you're making use of structure. So I think we can set goals in line with or parallel to our content that can actually help students build their mathematical agency and identity. So, so we could kind of keep teaching the way we are, but you're focusing more on like students kind of self-assessing in reflection along the way. Is that, is that what you're saying? I, I don't think there's a single vision for what it needs to look like. And each teacher's art of teaching is going to sort of fill in the pieces. But it's, I think that um, what we need, my vision for the short term, is that just a lot of conversations about the harm that grading is currently doing, the way that grading is currently contradicting the goals that we actually have for students, and then talking about what would it look like if we saw no barriers, no limits knowing that we have constraints and we have to work within them. But unless we sort of look for that big picture, we're never going to take steps that are progressive. Okay. And then, and Carl, same to you. So can you spell out just kind of what your vision is? Like what you're both talking about, some, some non-traditional approach. So what does it look like if, if teachers are still setting the standards, is it still just like it is now with tests and grades like that? I haven't had a lot of experience with, with tests and, and grades. So I, I don't think that would be what, what I'm visioning. I think the assignment or the the task that a student would look forward to at the end of their career would look like an opportunity to really show what they've learned, to to share the things that that happened uh, throughout their time with the teacher. And also like in that interaction, demonstrate their ability to communicate, to make arguments, to handle questions, to think um, creatively and that this might look like a big presentation or, or some some sort of some similar kind of like ending assignment. So having a class end in just a piece of paper that you look at for two hours or however long and and you know circle a bunch of questions is wouldn't be preparing kids, I think, for all the all the things that, that might be coming um, after. 
and it might not also just do justice to the to the full year um, that happened before. So if that's at the end, then you can look down like backwards and, and see all the important parts that help get the student there. Talking about content, yeah, the students are going to need to to understand the content like deep enough that they can speak off the cuff, that they can uh, answer questions and 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 see like weird nuances numbers that that aren't integers so that's so to get to that depth the teacher is going to have to sort of like realize well all right this is what the student is going towards then they're going to need to know about all these all these steps if the student's really interested in the way that the coronavirus grew and when wants to do some sort of uh, analysis then the teacher should be able to set some standards of like look you're going to have to make these graphs you're going to have to use these statistical formulas. This is this is a process for it. Just to help you sharpen your own understanding, here's some quizzes. You should try and do some of these things. Those assessments shouldn't be thought of as like the, the total of a grade, but really the steps toward the student really demonstrating what they're capable of later. Aside from the content, there's a number of things that aren't content related that, that students need to work on and that teachers need to set standards for. So there might be a need for a student to know how to communicate how to use math vocabulary fluidly, how to be able to collaborate with people, how to be able to ask important questions or to go research. And, and all these things are, are skills that the teacher is going to need to also be able to guide students on their journey. So that's, that's another thing that teachers would need to sort of set standards for. Um, these kind of work habits should also show up in a rubric and students could get feedback as they develop in these things over time. So there, and there's a lot of things I just talked about and all these things I talked about can't really fit into like a grade in a way that that makes sense. That's why I don't, I don't know if having something summed up in just like 80, 83 or you know, B minus is, is really doing kids justice, because if, if anything, it's it's making the student believe that what's important is actually a lot smaller than, than what it really is. And, and they're going to be deluded into thinking like, oh, I, I guess I'm really good at, at all the things that are important in math. And like, really, there's probably some things you're good at, like maybe you're fast and you're able to memorize things. But there's also things that you need to grow in, like communication, collaboration. And that's, that's more important. I was shopping for a computer because I've had some computer troubles uh, as of late. And I, I don't just look for which is the one that has the number one sales on Amazon. I go in and I look for what specs are, what the ratings are, and I look at the feedback. I go down and I see what the feedback is. And I think that's, a, that's what we should expect students to do when they're thinking about their learning. They should go in and look at like a holistic picture and, and not just sort of, oh, this is what the, this is what the final number is. So that's, that's all that matters. And so we need to set up a grade that, that can give them that feedback so that they can, they can, they can learn how to learn that way. And maybe let me follow up with both of you real quick on that. It, so can you say more about what showing their achievement is in, in each of your versions of like whether the teacher, teacher has set the standards or students do? What is it? What is a, for, in your view, a worthy way of showing mastery of a topic or, or however you want to say that? I'm really lucky that our school is a part of this uh, like consortium for performance assessment. So I'm going to like plug their, their model for graduation projects. The students throughout their high school collect like a, a series of their work in a portfolio. And then at the end, they look back at that portfolio, they see what they've done, and then they can do 
another project on top of that that's like built on that learning. So maybe if you're talking about functions, you could look at like linear, quadratic, you can see the way that you drew the tables when you're a freshman and how that might be more sophisticated as a sophomore. And then you're doing this new project about sine function that might in be, you might get a chance to like reflect on how you learned and, and how that's helping you solve a new problem. So I think looking back at your old work, treating that as like valuable, even though you've like moved on from it, being able to show that by trying a new non-traditional problem and, and putting that learning there and reflecting on the process, being able to reflect on what it is I'm doing. You know, I'm creating a table because I need to understand the pattern, but being able to, re- to reflect on that. I love all of that. I'm all f- about the portfolios for sure. Um, and especially like Carl mentioned, like that progress that you can see, maybe it's over the course of a school year, maybe it's over the course of a, of a school path, you know, through high school or whatever. I'm loving it. I always want to be thinking about like the students and teachers who aren't in a school, like the one Carl's describing. So much of their experience is just like the teacher writes a test, the students take the test, and they don't necessarily have those little touch points that show growth throughout the year. Um, and also just this idea that like, are the students all expected to follow the same growth trajectory? I mean, they're not coming into the same place. Is it realistic and reasonable to expect they should all get to the same place? Um, and that's kind of where like, I worry a little bit that we're so content focused and I'm not worried about losing content as an important component of what we do because we're super entrenched in content, like standards, standards, standards. It's all we're ever talking about. But the way that we've got school right now is students are earning grades passing tests, getting the scores, but not necessarily having a learning or an understanding, even in the same content that we think we're measuring them. And that's where I think like we need to adjust to something that obviously uses the content as a context, but we have different goals and larger goals. Maybe some of those goals are in terms of like the math practice standards, where we're setting up like, what are the things that mathematicians do? And let those be models for our students. And then bring them into that process of saying, well, here's the things I know I'm good at. And here's the things I don't think I'm good at. And I can bring in my observations for that conversation. And let's set some goals that are not just like about functions and about solving equations and about modeling, but also about like those habits, the things that we know are going to contribute to students being successful. And I just don't see how I can evaluate all those things for all the students. So I think like the student's role needs to be central in that. I can be a facilitator and I can bring in my expertise, but like the student's got to be ultimately the one that's gaining the independence as a learner by evaluating their own growth. So Nolan, coming back to you, um, when students are setting their own standards and they are kind of within this whole process with you uh, and you're facilitating it, at some point, are we giving students too much control? Like, can they, are they able to just kind of do whatever they want. I'm thinking to like, you know, a lot of the teachers that I work with and a lot of teachers I, I have spoke to that are in more of a traditional setting, they would be very uneasy about even approaching that subject, right? So are we giving them too much control, the students? Yeah, I think um, that's certainly possible and not just possible, but like it could very well happen. Let's say I'm seeing some of that in my own classes, uh, maybe 10th grade in the middle of a pandemic after a year of remote and disrupted learning wasn't the best time to, to start all these new things. So one of the things I've been learning the hard way, let's call it, is that that can definitely be a thing where there needs to be structure and there needs to be sort of a partnership walking together. You know, if we're just willy-nilly being like, I don't know. I mean, I, I genuinely believe like grades are trash, grades are pointless, like Carl had said. But and I know like we can't just throw them out and let the students evaluate because grades are such capital in our society. 
So my ultimate vision for this is like a K-12 articulation where in the early grade bands, the teachers are working with the students to help like identifying the things they're good at and the things they like and the things that they're apprehensive about. And as the students get older, the teachers are sort of partners, but almost like stepping away and leading, you know, leaving off to that. But I think something we should strive for, and I think we may be a million miles away from it right now, is that by the time kids are of high school age, like there's no reason that they should need to be micromanaged in our classes. And we need to have conversations about the, you know, how do we get from where we are to there? And what about the students who just aren't interested? Like, how do we navigate those things? Uh, And I don't have all the answers for that, but I just know that like what we want in terms of independent learners, what we want in terms of initiative that doesn't rely on us constantly, constantly being on people, like the skills that we, you know, we think of as functioning adults in our different career paths. If we're not expecting those things of our students in high school, then when are they really getting them? So I think we have to like aim for that and then figure out the pathway to it. And on the other side of that for Carl, if teachers are setting the standards and whatever your vision is for like the alternative to traditional grading, would that potentially stifle student choice and agency? within or your vision of uh, the, the grading? I don't know if the students would, appre- would would take it that way. I think the a lot of what no one's saying, like, is like I'm 100% with. So I guess the, the thing that I, that I think would, would end up happening is if the teacher is going to sit down with the student and sort of line out what's going to happen, it might be that the student will look at the teacher thinking, well, what do you want? Or what should I do and what, what could it look like? And, and I've been in those kind of situations too, where the teacher, you know, the students are like trying to read you. So that wouldn't be good. And having a teacher be able to like step in and say, okay, look, I'll tell you what the, what it is. I'm not necessarily trying to let you hundred percent lead the process. I have a little bit of a, a stake in this. This is my vision for what I think you should be doing. And the vision that I imagine a teacher would be coming that would be the sort of teacher standards wouldn't just be like you're going to you're going to be able to demonstrate standard, you know, HSF four to three times on test. I think that the standards would be more like you're going to be able to see yourself as a mathematician. You're going to be able to hit all those practice standards. You're going to be able to be a good classmate and a good participant in group work and things like that. And that's where we're starting. And then from there, you figure out like what your path should be. Do you, if you think your path should end up going towards calculus, then I'm going to make it my job to try to help you get there as a teacher. But we're going to have to have some standards set first of what it looks like to really like be not just like a math person in my class so that we can get through the, the daily functioning, but because I know the neighborhood, the kinds of students that we have and where they're going into in terms of our like larger society, like, I should have some standard of how I want them to be prepared, how I want them to, to view themselves and to, and to uh, view their classmates. So having the teacher standards that I'm imagining are more this vision of, of like what it looks like to be a math, math student. So uh, when I think about, you know, the, the teachers I work with and uh, some of the, the issues that they have, how do you address in your two systems the students that, you know, say things like, I'm never going to need to know this. This is stupid. They just are totally checked out. They're not seeing whether it's on Nolan's side. They're they setting their own standards. It's going to be whatever the path of least resistance. 
And then on Carl's side, it's like, I don't see myself as a mathematician. Math is dumb. So like, how do we try to bring those kids into your two systems? So I'm thinking of a student that I had today who had actually not come this semester until just now and spent a bunch of time during class being like, look, I don't really know this and I'm not really good at math. And so I'm just going to like be here doing this. And, and a lot of my class, a lot today was just spent with them like saying like, try this, try writing a table, try talking to your group. We we're doing like the, the whiteboards, the VNPS. I think for students like that, who, who are coming up, like saying, Hey, look, I want to do as little as possible. That's my plan is just to do that because I don't think I belong. I think I need to try. I try to not just give them not just to, to, to say no, to, to say no, actually, that's not the case. You can do it. And let me, uh, let me show you how. But to give them like some some footing to do that, to, to get out of that hole that they're in, to say, hey, here's something you can try. You can try starting with the table and hey, you can try working with your group. So those those hopefully will give them footholds and handholds to like climb out of like where they are and more towards this idea that I'm trying to get them to be or the vision that I'm trying to help have them see themselves as. And Nolan? Yeah. It's a tricky one, right? I mean, we all have so much experience with students that are hard, that seem hard to to keep on task, hard to be focused, hard to care about it the way we want them to care about it. And I can't help but wonder, like, how much of the reactions? I'm, let's see, I'm coming from a high school lens predominantly, has to do with like all the stuff that led up to it, right? I mean, the same students in my class that I have trouble getting to work on an activity, even maybe in a vertical non permanent surface group activity, or maybe it's something individual they're still busting out Wordle. Like they're still, they're still playing the games. Like they like the challenge and the thinking. There's just something about what we've created as a school structure that they think either doesn't matter to me or maybe even more prominently, like I can't do this. So I just don't care about it. So I feel like part of assigning relevance is stepping away from the actual math content. That's like, well, you have to be able to find the slope from a table of values and You've got to be able to come up with the equation of a quadratic function from three order pairs. Like, why? Like, I'm never going to convince a kid that they need that. But if we start talking about, you know, the relevance of just general mathematical literacy in terms of opening access and pathways and opportunities for people, especially to students who maybe historically are part of groups that have been restricted from things, maybe we can touch on something that's different and relevant. And if we can tap into like, what is it that, this, that the students care about? What is it that this, that's important to the students? And sort of see math as like a parallel to open those kinds of opportunities rather than something that's maybe pulling them away from their hobbies and habits. I just feel like we can transform what school is for, for, our, for all of our students. So, so I'm hearing like students for Nolan, like in your vision, like they're kind of creating their own goals and you're, you're helping them facilitate that, right? And, and Carl, you're talking also about like all the things that are not just content that we want to set as goals for students as teachers set the goals, but still like we're, we're driving towards that. And I just wonder, speaking as like a high school point of view, when so many students and families are thinking about college, if we give them grades based on like how much of a mathematician they consider themselves or things like that, how does that convey to college? And I know some colleges, when schools get away from like more traditional systems of grading, then that college requires its own standardized tests. So are we creating some kind of like other issue down the road? Are we just kicking the can? It seems to me that a lot of things that inhibit progress come from worrying about structures in place that are going to become roadblocks. And 
if we're waiting for higher ed to make changes so that we can make changes in K-12, then we're never going to make any changes. Meanwhile, the gaps that we see are going to perpetuate. And it just doesn't seem like an excuse that we can continue with. Yes, there's going to be roadblocks, but I think that you know we need to have those conversations and redefine what it is. And a standardized test may never suit some students. There may always be students who don't process things in the with all the brilliance that they muster. They might not necessarily meet in a limited time frame, multiple choice style, whatever it is they're using as standardized testing. So, I mean, I know that in um, the community colleges for the last you know several years, they've been talking about multiple measures in terms of class placement. There should always be multiple measures of looking at whether students are prepared and apt for higher level study. And honestly, the best thing we can do is give them the habits that ensure success rather than some arbitrary set of standards, I'll call them, we call them, uh, that don't necessarily have reliability or validity in terms of what students are capable of. Carl, do you want to add anything? Yeah. I think college is this like horrible machine focused on like delivering privilege to whoever was able to put as much money into it or resources into it. So there's that. And you know, Nolan, I think summed up a lot of those difficulties. I'm saying like, what can I control as a teacher? And I think as a teacher, the thing is like having the students see themselves as mathematicians is like your number one thing. If you, not that this is like studied case or whatever, but I remember I had this one student who was like, yeah, I'm not a math person. I don't, I, I don't like math. I hate it. And they, they took my class for the whole year. And then after my class, I was like, listen, you're going to go to college. You're going to go get a placement test. You're going to fail it because we didn't do any tests. And then when you fail it, go to the admissions office or whoever does the scheduling, you go in there and you say, look, give me the hardest math class I'm eligible for, because that's going to be like your best plan because you know how to learn math. You don't know how to take tests, but that's not like what the point of this is. And since you figured that out about yourself this year, then you just, you approach next year. It's like, yeah, this is going to be a chance for me to learn math. I'm going to go and I'll get a tutor if I need it. I'm going to go to the help room. I'm just going to like lock this down. I'm going to get classmates to study. And so, yeah. And she sent me like a letter afterwards saying like, I did that and it worked. And I have a lot of students who don't do that. And they go in and they, they, they're at colleges where they're not allowed to take that kind of class. And so they're taking these remedial classes and the remedial classes are like the, sorry, we already talked about college stuff. <laughs> what can high school teachers do? So, so I think if this, like the thing that you, you're sending out is you're sending out like a person and not a transcript. So make sure that person that you're sending out feels like they can teach math, uh, feels like they can learn math and is ready to like tackle the problem and the challenge of, of math at that higher level, as opposed to sending out a transcript that's full of exactly what colleges want to see. And then they show up and go to those classes that colleges want to put them in so that then they can, you know, take that money from them and then put them in these remedial. I'm sorry. I said I wasn't going to talk about college. <laughs> go, Carl. That's a good thing. <laughs> um, let me follow up with that with, so I mean, you both brought up equity and things and in, in, in various forms in this conversation already. And I wonder, can you just say more about more traditional current systems and how, as we move towards either of your visions of grading, how that would be more equitable and, and what your goals are with that? Well, I think that, um, I mean, we have plenty of documentation that our history of our current educational system it goes, you know, back at least as far as the Industrial Revolution, where there was no intention of of having something that was liberatory. There was no intention of opening up lots of um, social mobility for students. 
The goal was to track managers into a managerial path and factory workers towards a factory path. And it's remarkable that we are basically using a lot of the same practices in traditional education today. Um, and even when we're trying to like change the way we do instruction and relooking at curriculum, like if our grading practices haven't evolved from the same sorts of things that are like, can you check the boxes? Can you move the thing down the line, which is a lot of what our assessment defaults to, then ultimately all those other things are just lip service, right? We're in an age where like, we're not trying to get to the moon anymore, but we still have a high school math curriculum that's largely rooted in like 1960s vision of the skills that we need engineers to have. So I just think it's time to adapt all of it sort of like to the moment where we are, which is like, we know people are hurting. We know we're now confronting new ways of looking at students' identities as they impact their ability to learn, their sense of belonging and all these things. And the education's just not caught up to that yet. So I don't see how we can have a vision for the future that doesn't sort of individualize what we're doing with students in terms of our curriculum, our instruction, assessment, and evaluation, putting them at the center, sort of highlighting, you know, the things that we can see just compounding, getting worse and worse over time. Okay. My school, first off, doesn't do grades. So that's one thing we're like pass fail. So this is going to be my best attempt to try to try to help out or other people who, who aren't in that situation. I think with grades, there, there's an assumption that like you can actually be as precise as you're saying that like, oh, yeah, this is a 90. This student is a, is a 92. And it's like even if even with that, like you're you're saying what they did in this period of time and not like who they are. So like, what's, what's, why even try to be that precise? I think just the, taking the, taking the grading scale down a notch and turning it into like, maybe just a few numbers, like one, two, three, four, that something like that would, would be, make sense. Uh, there's some schools who maybe take it a step further and focus on just doing narratives. I think my, my first school would do that. I think there would be a grade, but we would, every teacher would explain like why that happened in like words. And then the student's advisor would like weave them all together and send students like a, a document that explains exactly what's going on. This may, may or may not have been actually read by the parents. And that's OK, because the next thing might help, too. And I think student student led conferences might be a way to do it. So to have the parent teacher conference where the, the parent comes and talks to the teachers, have the, the student could lead that. And in the situation that we're in right now where we have a lot of people are used to Zoom and they're, they're used to that. And there's a noted need for more social emotional learning for students. This would be a great time to, to shift away from like pure numbers to have some conversation about like what growth looks like for that student. Um, and that would be something that I think a teacher could, could try and do now if they wanted to. So, you know, thinking about what you both just said, um, there are some teachers that feel that grading motivates students or at least some students and we can get into the research on another podcast but my question i guess is like how would your system of grading help motivate the students to want to be better versions of this of themselves because that's kind of what you're both saying like you want the students to be better, better versions of themselves how is your system helping with that to motivate them and the ones who seem to be unmotivatable the ones that are defiant that's a challenge. I, I don't. Th I don't know how to step away from like all of the characterizations of whether a student's motivated or not motivated. They they fall into a power structure, which is defined as the teacher is an authority and the student is to be told what's true about them. 
I mean, it, it more, even more so than the teachers you mentioned, Rob, like students, in my experience, like they want the points, they want the structures. And I don't know, you know, how much of that is just like we've adapted to that. It's all we've known. We know how to do it. And it's, you know, easy in a sense that like you tell me A, B and C and I will do A, B and C. I'm successful versus something that's unknown that's a lot more nebulous, that's a lot more like it's demanding in a sense that like you you can't just not know and then do school. You've got to like, you've got to know, you've got to be thinking, you've got to be an active participant. I think that's hard. I don't know that that's like a solvable problem in terms of like, I'm going to flip a switch tomorrow or next year and teach differently and students are going to adapt to it. My experiences is telling me it's not seamless, it's difficult. So we've got large conversations to have. But on the flip side of that, when we have those genuine conversations where we open up about like the structures and systems that we all live under, people know that, you know, on various levels, it's either like oppressive or it's just sort of in some way it's dehumanizing. It might not necessarily shred all of their humanity in the ways that it affects some folks, but everybody knows that like, I just do the things. And I don't know, I feel like we have to want people, students to care that they have a more active role, that the agency belongs to them and shouldn't be decided for them, not just in school, but so that we create these like, you know, global citizens that we have in all of our vision statements. I just don't see how we get there without confronting that. And I don't think it's a simple fix. I think it's a cultural shift that has to change as we rethink what school looks like and what its purpose is. Let's say you're getting dressed, right? You go look in the mirror and you want to see if you're looking like, like you're ready to go out, you get your best self, everything's looking tip top. So I think the students want that from their grades. I don't think that motivation is necessarily that they love the numbers. I think they want to know clearly, oh yeah, this is how I get there. And I can get what I'm supposed to get out of this class by doing these things at this level of quality. For students who really like timed tests and, and just really enjoy like speed and, and challenges, then that might be great. But there are also a lot of students for whom math has not you know served them well over the sort of evolution past Sputnik uh, and, and things like that, that aren't going to do well in that system. And so that's if you go back to the mirror analogy, like that's like somebody where instead of seeing your face and seeing, OK, this is what I need to do. I got to shave. I need to, you know, separate my eyebrows or whatever. They, they might see somebody else. You know what I mean? And they see this other this other face and they're like, oh, I'm supposed to get to there. Like, I don't even that's not even me. How, why, why am I seeing the comparison of the person who's getting an A in the class and, and having that held up? And that's where I'm trying to go. I need a mirror that reflects me. And I think that's what the, the grading system needs to be. And that's what motivates kids knowing where they need to go, having the clarity and having the end goal be being your best self, not being like somebody else. Okay. So the question becomes like, who's, who's the one deciding what that vision of me needs to look like, right? If it's gotta be the student, but if it's, if the teacher has a role, that's like, I mean, our system is favoring the kids who are fast, get right answers, don't have to ask too many questions, process quicker, and not valuing the students who don't keep up with that model that's traditionally seen as being good at math, right? Like we have conversations about people being good at math or not good at math around one vision. And we, of course, all know that like we're trying to deconstruct that, but we don't get there unless we challenge that paradigm and let students be the voice in defining like there's lots of ways to be good at math. There's lots of ways to be successful. 
And it doesn't all have to end in chapter 13 of the textbook, right? That's that's kind of where I'm coming from. Like I'm, I'm right there with you. I worry that some students, and this might be just because those students that I'm thinking of have been damaged by the system. If you ask them, well, what do I, what can I do? What's possible for me? You know, like, like if you ask them to create the vision, they're going to shortchange themselves. And uh, the teacher needs to come in and sort of say like, no, we're not just trying to get a D and get out of here. We're trying to get you to the, the, the you and not, you know, not somebody else. And so that's what I'm saying that the teachers, the teacher's role is to really do more than just let the student shortchange themselves. I hear that. I want to jump back for a moment. One of you said in your opening statement something about, I think maybe it was you, Carl, about uh, how adults, how we want to be graded. Like, like we don't want this like traditional system. We want feedback and, and something more robust. I, I, can you both say more of like, as a professional, how would you want to be graded? Yeah, I wrote that out ahead of time. And then as I was like talking, I thought of like a bunch of stuff. Like, oh, credit scores and oh, observation, Danielson rubrics and all and all these things. But I don't know. I'm an adult. I've seen it enough. I've internalized it to some degree. And I'm able to like get that and then move to the next question of like, so what? Like now what? What's next? I, I get the credit score. I see whatever it is. And then I can say, okay, well, let me download my whole credit report and look and see why there's a dip and did somebody steal my identity? You know what I mean? Like I can, I, I go through and I sort of, sit, I get feedback on what's next from that. I feel like that's what I want as an adult is I want these, I want to, I want to know what's next. I want to figure out how to get to whatever the next level is. It's not useful for me to know that on Duolingo, I'm on, you know, one out of whatever million people that are, are doing Duolingo. I just want to know, like, what am I doing on my next level? Are we learning? We're learning vowels. Let's do the vowels. I heard this interesting thought earlier. Someone was saying how, like, our students, every single thing that they utter, they're accountable for, right? Like, we give them a sheet and maybe it's the first time they've experienced it. And I'm going to collect that worksheet and I'm going to look at them today. We ask them, we tell them a fact and then we ask them a question and we expect them to have some kind of an intelligent response right away. We have all kinds of experience with students who like aren't even in that space, but yet they feel like they get called out for not sort of being there. Like our system doesn't really offer a lot of privacy for students in that growth spot. We're sort of like, I'm telling you things and now it's time for you to respond to me and I'm going to evaluate that response. Um, And I was thinking about how much like that's not how I operate professionally. I have a lot of flexibility. You know, this morning I was struggling with the parking lot and I had a colleague open my classroom. And I wasn't worried about losing points or pay. My kids handled their business. I got there two minutes after the bell rang and we picked it up, right? And sometimes my lessons aren't great. Sometimes they're a total flop. And I don't worry that like I'm going to be diminished as a teacher in some weird external capacity. Like I learn from it. I grow from it. And if anything, like I wasn't prepared to handle these situations through a schooling setting that said, well... You lost points on Monday and you did pretty good Tuesday, but it was so-so Wednesday. So here's your percentage. Like it just doesn't match the way that we grow and adapt as adults. And I don't know why we wouldn't expect to have the same thing happen in a school setting. Why do we feel like we have to micromanage all that stuff? So you're both sharing some great ideas, like visions for what, like in theory, at least what grading could be. So could we talk more practically? So if a teacher is teaching in a very traditional place, and they want to kind of break away in some sense, whether the teacher is still setting the standards or no, in your, your case, the students are, are leading the charge on the standards. But what are what are first steps? How do they transition? Can you give them like, what is advice? Speak directly to teachers here. Um, what can they do 
next or what's their first step at least? Uh, something I was thinking about recently was like some beginning of the school year kinds of activities where the students would obviously be doing all the routines that I want. I'd be introducing those things. So, you know, we're doing vertical non-permanent surfaces. We're doing group work. We're doing individual stuff on paper. We're introducing things through Desmos and I will be keeping observations. They are learning to adapt to routines. They are also engaged in content oriented tasks, whether those are like curricular or in Lilia Dahl's idea, like the beginning ones might be non-curricular, but they're still like school-based thinking stuff in a mathematical context. But I don't see my role at that moment as needing to like see who's got right answers and wrong answers. That's not my primary function. I'm envisioning like, oh, I'm noticing that this student will sit there for a half an hour with a paper and draw on it and doodle on it and then turn it in at the end of the period. And it'll say like, I didn't know how to do any of this. And so one thing I'm noticing is this is a student who doesn't feel comfortable to reach out to someone. And that's that should be like something I'm identifying as a starting place for conversation about a goal for this student. I see another student who's very strong in the groups with writing and getting the answers, but wasn't very good at including the group members, sort of fixated on doing the work quickly. And, and now I have a role for this student. Like one of the things I want this student to see as a growth is to be more inclusive of other people's ideas and to sort of prioritize the group dynamic and the collaboration, maybe even a coaching role from student to student over like the quickness of getting the answer. So I'm thinking from a practical standpoint, I can be doing content-oriented things without doing only content-oriented things. And I might actually benefit both of those students way more than just working through the worksheet, coming up beside of them and saying, hey, let me help you with that by having them identify, oh, these are things that I'm not good at, but I should be growing in. And like, what if a student felt like your grade will go up when you adapt to asking for more help? And I'm thinking that's going to be an entry point for us to talk about content. But from the student's point, like they don't care if they learn the content or not, but they might appreciate, yeah, it would be good for me to be more comfortable asking for help when I need help. Like that's the kind of stuff that I feel like from a practical level we can do that isn't part of our curriculum, but should be part of how we see our role. I think in terms of like looking at your math content, the grades are putting a filter on what you're, what kind of things you're asking students to do. So I'd ask to try to remove that, try to actively say like, all right, if I'm teaching linear equations, I make, need to make sure they get Y equals M plus B slope formula to, to give them a task that shows a pattern and say, like, tell me as much as you know about this. See if you can find a pat, find a rule that, you know, an informal rule of, of figuring out the pattern, figuring out what's, what would it be if you took it out to like number 8,086, something like that. So the students can can approach it without having to worry about grades. And you as a teacher also don't have to worry about like their grades. Instead, you're worrying about like what connections are they making. And hopefully if it's open, if it's an open problem enough, then there, there might be things like there might be like what you want. It's like, okay, linear equations, got it. And then there might be space for them to do more, to do something that that like if they if a student catches it, they, there might be like an extra and make another pattern that's quadratic and you just put it out there and say, oh, yeah, if you get done with this, try that one. See how far you get. And some kids might actually get a quadratic and that's cool. And some kids that, that you already know, they you already like measure their linear ability. You can put that you can you can check that box on your, on your grades, which you have to if you're still at a traditional school. But you can create a, a space for students to see math as something like more than just getting the grade and then that's it. So I think that doing doing kinds of tasks that you might see on like the Shell Center, that project is good. 
or I like using the task analysis guide as a, a, a way to ask questions like, are my tasks like rich enough? Is it low floor, high ceiling? I think that's a good, a good starting place. And then, yeah, having, having some kind of like norms in your class or work habits or some language around like what it, what it should look like in here when you're doing math, what, what does it look like? Make sure everybody knows what it is. And then ask kids to periodically uh, if you have to do quizzes or something like that, the weekly quizzes, like how did it self self-reflect? How did I do? How did I do on that? How was I a good group person? Did I ask people for help? Things like that. I think that would be good. And the final question, again, this is going to be advice to teachers. How do we as teachers advocate and push back against resistance to change? And I want you to think more administratively, colleagues, parents, and communities, members. So basically all stakeholders, but kind of really in that order, because it normally starts with administration. Your colleagues will have pushback. And then inevitably, parents want their students to have to be an A student, right? Or in community members um, pushing back at that as well. I'll actually start with you, Carl, and then we'll go to Nolan. Speak directly to the teachers. Like you're the one in the classroom. So I think as much pressure as there is, like you still get to close your door and and do do what you want to do. So if you get to just start the revolution over your just your like one assignment that you're doing on this Thursday, like that's great. Like kudos, you did it. I think that's the first thing. Small victories. That that's that's how it's going to work out. Then your students are in there with you. They see that there's a difference. They appreciate it. And I think if the students, the student government, if they're able to like articulate how grades are harming the school culture, their own thoughts about themselves, I think that would also be really important too. And that's like right there. That's in your classroom. That's in your in your control. If you wanted to take it a step further, every school and every school district is different. But I, I think at the as a district level. You know, schools are essentially like political objects operating, you know, under whoever the, the current politician is. If that's something that a, a way that you can connect to and you can have your local like elected official talking about grades, that's great. They're probably going to come to schools and shoot these photo ops anyways. You can invite them and say, hey, come in here and learn about a new way to do things. And I'm, I'm surprised some of the things these like politicians show up at our school or other schools for. So that might be a way to do it too. Do your thing in your classroom and then open your doors. That, that's, that's my idea. I love that. I also think that, um, you know, we're having really nuanced conversations here as educators and parents, administrators, even administrators who, of course, may have previously been teachers. They're not in a role right now where they're thinking about the same nuances that we are. So we're splitting a lot of hairs and things. But ultimately, a lot of the fear of change is, number one, perceived. And number two comes from a place of not necessarily knowing what an alternative would be. Um, But I found in my own personal experience this year, teaching in a really traditional school and a really traditional school community um, and an area where they're sort of expected to be traditional, ironically, probably with a lot of parents who maybe didn't really love school, right? Because like it didn't necessarily serve them well. They got through it. That's some of the things I hear my students saying their parents tell them, Um, but they're still going to be an apprehension to something different. Just because like, how do we even have a framework for that? So a couple of things that I've done to counteract that. Number one is not make assumptions that the things that I want to address through change are necessarily going to be contested. Number two, headed off ahead. I've, I've written actually a lot more at the beginning and fewer just because, I mean, what kind of a year has this been? 
but a lot of parent newsletters home at the beginning. And there weren't so much a numerous um, number of letters as much as they were detailed, explaining my rationale, showing some pictures of students working in vertical spaces, showing students actually being productive in a classroom that has no desks in my personal uh, case, and not getting anything back except excitement and acceptance from parents because their kids are coming home excited about something that's different. My administrators have been super supportive, but one should expect ex- expressed a little bit of hesitancy or at least concern at the beginning. They've been sort of feeling it out from parent and student feedback as well. My colleagues have been amazingly supportive. I have basically said to my geometry team, like, I'm going to be doing a little bit different curriculum style. I'm not following the same pacing. And they've been like, you let us know how it goes. But, you know, it hasn't been like what I anticipated, which is like, you can't do that because we're not all doing that. They're interested to sort of let me try things out too. So I think we perceive that there's going to be a lot more pushback than I've personally experienced. I expected it, haven't seen it as much. And even the places where I haven't been amazing, like I haven't done a good enough job at communicating progress along the way. I'm still not getting that many emails, honestly, very few, because the parents are learning to trust that the system is different from an educator who is passionate. So I think we have a lot to leverage in terms of uh, building in support for the changes we want to make. We just have to kind of step out and start doing it. And of course, you want to find people to collaborate with. Ideally, those would be in your building. Um, But if you don't have a lot of collaborators in your building, then find a community on Twitter and other places where you can have people to throw ideas around with and get ideas from. Great plug for Twitter there at the end. And I think that will conclude our questioning round. We will now end by giving each side two minutes to make their final arguments to you. And we are going to begin first with Carl. Carl, your two minutes starts now. We just finished talking about advocacy and how the long-run vision of a school system that doesn't have our grading policies would would need a lot of advocacy at multiple levels, certainly involving people in Congress and in your school district. But the first level is is you, is the teacher themselves, the person who went through the system probably and, and has a lot of thoughts about grading. And those thoughts are probably infiltrating what's going on with the way that you grade your class and the way that you lay out your curriculum. I think the possibilities of of opening up grading opens up a lot of curriculum so that there's new things for students to focus on and ways that they can grow and uh, ways that math content can be connected and, and interrelated in ways that could only help the students grow. Doing more of this type of curriculum will probably tease out clear like standards of, of what's possible, what works in your school, what works with your population. And having those kind of um, standards would, would really help the students understand how they can move their way up in terms of like the students' own thoughts about math and in the subject, understanding more content, understanding more of the connections and what they need to know as they as they go out and, and on to the what's possible in, in higher education or other applications of math that they that they might see. We certainly need a world full of people capable of using math in order to tackle a lot of the problems that this 21st century is throwing at us. So taking any step possible to create more students who are, who are ready to do that is, is a step that we should take. Very good. And with the final word, we have Nolan Fossum. We did a lot of talking um, in the earlier part of the pandemic about recognizing this as an opportunity for change 
and seeing that while our schooling system seems to have served some students or not harmed some students in horrible ways, that there were a lot of students who just weren't being served. And so I worry that we've lost a little bit as things seem to be returning to a more of a vision of what we're accustomed to of some of those needs for change. And we can certainly look to ways to serve the students who have been marginalized, who have not been served in school without harming the students who have traditionally been doing well in school. In fact, we should expect that students who have been doing well in school would probably relatively easily adapt to something that was different. So we can focus on the students who are at the margins and find ways to bring them in. In our case, to bring them into a mathematics education that honors their strengths and brilliance, that sets them up to be successful, and that doesn't highlight their what we call their deficits or their gaps, but sees them as they are. And I don't know that we can create this world of students that are served unless we have those critical conversations interrogating the practices that have been just a part of our system as long as we've all been here. And so it's going to take that internal looking at the self to sort of see what are the things that I'm really valuing and then being open to have those conversations about the things that are part of our practice that don't align with those values. And so like a, a, just a question to throw out, does a student have to demonstrate mastery of 90% of the content topics in your course to earn an A? And are you willing to verify that the students who are earning an A actually have mastery of 90%? Or is that come back to ideas of school that don't necessarily align with valuable learning? Is it possible that we can serve the content to keep kids prepared towards a future pathway? but also serve who they are as people and, and seeking a relevance to, to themselves as individuals, to their cultures, their families, in the context of the math content in a way to bring them in, to make it more relevant, and ultimately to have them show their best. Can we be looking at alternate ways of assessment through portfolios, um, not making assumptions that I can write a test that can actually demonstrate whether students know, but I can open up to alternative ways that bring in students' voice so they can show me what they know rather than my assuming from a limited instrument that that's the case. So I just feel like there's a lot we can do in this moment to say, what is it that really we value and are our goals? And let's just start looking at ways to trim our practice to match that. And thank you both. That concludes our debate, which was really much more of a just a discussion. You had so uh, many great points. you're, You're in agreement on so many things about grading. Thank you both for sharing and making us think more about grading. And now it's up to our listeners to take a moment to ponder the arguments and really think about what resonated with you. And again, thank you to both of our guests for your thoughtful responses to everything and making us think deeply and abstractly at times about, uh, grading what it could be uh, in, a, in a more ideal place in some sense, perhaps. And also thanks to all that are listening. Um, we hope that you enjoyed uh, this and, and learned from this. It's definitely a slightly uh, different change to what we uh, typically do because we wanted to have more of a nuanced conversation about some alternatives to traditional grading. So hopefully you enjoyed this. Uh, don't forget to share it with your friends and uh, your colleagues. And as we wrap up, Carl Oliver, where can listeners find you? Um, I'm on Twitter sometimes at, at Carl Olliwitter, C-A-R-L-O-L-I-W-I-T-T-E-R. I have a website with a blog. It might change soon, but right now it's at 
coast to coast.me slash Carl. And in 2023, uh, you can find me in Washington, D.C. at the NCTM annual conference, which is going to be exciting. And the application for participant for people who want to present um, opens up July 1st, 2022. So, so get those proposals ready. Apply for NCTM or attend NCTM 2023 to see Carl <laughs> leading, leading the charge. Yeah. And uh, Nolan, where can listeners find you? I'm pretty active on Twitter at Nolan Fossum. And I have a relatively new website, nolanfossum.com, with a, an infant blog. And also, uh, <laughs> I guess, uh, wherever, wherever you've got a podcast or a conference, you'll probably find me milling around. <laughs> awesome. Thank you all. And that's the end of our episode for today. Want to learn more about incorporating debate activities into your math classroom? Go to lozniak.com slash podcast to sign up for my mailing list and get your first set of example debate activities you could use with your students today. Go to lozniak.com slash podcast. Don't forget to reach out to us with comments and questions on debatemath.com or follow us on Twitter at debatemathpod and follow along with hashtag debatemathpod. And we appreciate if you'd rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. Or wherever you listen to this podcast. Your feedback is super important to us. Well, that's all from us. Looking forward to debating with you more next episode. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.